the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Hello. Uh, Lovely to see you this morning. Uh, Great to be uh, praying with you as well. My name is Simon. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm one of the leaders here at the church. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing our series uh, through uh, John's Gospel, and we're going to be taking a look at John uh, chapter 12. Hannah, would it be possible to have the slide up? But first, a question for you. Uh, Did you watch? Did you watch? I'd be fascinated to know. Could you pop a hand in the air if you did watch? I'm kind of uh, curious as to what our... Okay. And, and who was trying to avoid it? Who was trying to avoid it? Okay. All right. The first bit won't be too long. Don't worry, guys who are trying to avoid it. Okay. So uh, yesterday, yesterday, we saw the coronation of King Charles III. And if you were watching it, and it was very tricky not to, it was very tricky to avoid. If you were watching it, here's some of the things that I think you probably saw. You probably saw uh, things like this. You would have seen uh, stately coaches, wouldn't you, have been drawn uh, throughout London. You'll have seen elaborate uh, processions up and down uh, Westminster Abbey. You'll have seen uh, scepters and orbs. You'll have seen uh, thrones and crowns. You'll have seen a whole lot of what I think is probably best phrased as classical glory. You have seen uh, visible splendor, uh, honor, and prestige, and you have seen uh, power and authority as King Charles III was uh, crowned uh, yesterday. Now, you may have had uh, a great deal of stamina for it. You might have considered yourself a penny mordant amongst those who were watching, or perhaps, uh, rather than feeling like penny mordant, who must have got pretty, pretty, pretty exhausted after a while of carrying that sword, you might have felt a bit more like this guy, uh, who was just plain, plain exhausted uh, by it all. That's, uh, that's a great coronation weekend there, isn't it? Just, um, uh, just on the screen. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see anyone dressed like that this morning, actually. <clears throat> But at 11 a.m. yesterday, uh, his hour had come. His moment had arrived, and King Charles III was, was crowned in, in Westminster Abbey. And I think you were seeing there just a classical definition of glory. You could actually just call all of yesterday's spectacle glorious, couldn't you? It would be a definition of glory. Now, that little word glory is one that was one of John's favorite words. It appears throughout John's gospel. It's there 19 times, glory, 23 times, glorify. That word glory is all over John's gospel. And we're going to read about glory this morning. In our series, Come and See, we're working our way through the pages of John's gospel and we find ourselves in chapter 12. We've already met the word glory a number of times already. Right at the very outset, we're introduced to the glory of God in the glory of Jesus. 
John, the writer of John's gospel, says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's gospel is all about glory. And you'll have noticed from uh, the band's songs this morning that glory is all over our singing as well this morning. But I want us to come and see a very different kind of glory from the glory that you were displayed yesterday. I want you to come and see, I'm convinced of one thing this morning, I want us to come and see a very different kind of glory. Not the visible splendor of yesterday's coronation, but a very different kind of glory in the way that Jesus wants to speak about glory. So that's where we're off to this morning. I'm convinced of one thing, one thing I want to convince you of. I want us to come and see a very different coronation. So could you find for me John chapter 12 in your Bibles, pull that up in a paper copy or on your phone. And in a few moments time, we are going to read from verse 20. We find ourselves in the latter half of John's gospel. Johnny preached for us last week on John chapter 11. You could view the whole of the gospel as two chunks. John 1 to 11, Jesus's life. John 12 to 21, uh, Jesus's death. And we have now entered the latter half of John's gospel. Previously on John, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. You can catch up with that. Uh, on YouTube, listen to Johnny from last week. Jesus has performed the seventh of his signs, raising Lazarus from the dead. And that's had a very particular impact on the plot. That has heightened and intensified opposition to Jesus. And it's brought about this determination amongst those who are opposed to Jesus to stamp out the Jesus problem. Right now, here's what you need to know as we approach our passage. There is a warrant out for Jesus' arrest, chapter 11, verse 57. But this is completely ineffectual, as he's now so popular, Jesus is so popular, he looks untouchable, chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. And much to the frustration of all of the religious leaders, they say in exasperation about Jesus, trying to arrest him, trying to stamp out the Jesus problem. They say this, John 12 and verse 19. They say, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And they say far more than they could ever really know when they say that. Now, here's why we've got kings and coronations on our mind this isn't just because the coronation happened yesterday. I think there is quite a legitimate link. Let me try and prove it to you. Jesus has been anointed just like a king. The anointing of Jesus at Bethany, John 12, verse 3. Jesus has been acclaimed by the people just like a king. The triumphant entry, John chapter 12 and verse 13. And Jesus has entered the capital city, sat upon a donkey just like the kings of old, John chapter 12 and verse 15. All of that's by way of preamble. Let's pray and then read the Bible uh, together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we do ask that through it we may see Jesus now and in his true glory we pray. Amen. Fantastic. Well, do 
Uh, Take a look at your Bibles, John chapter 12 and from verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid from them. Well, we're just going to pause it right there. Now, we've said that the first half of John's gospel is Jesus's life and the second half of John's gospel is Jesus's death. Here's another way of saying the same thing. If you ever read a commentary on John, a book on John, you'll come across this. The first half of John's gospel could be referred to as the book of signs. The second half of John's gospel, the book of glory. In our little passage this morning, we get four references to glory And two of those come from heaven itself. Now, I'm out to convince you of this one thing. Come and see a very different coronation. And I'm hoping now just to prove that uh, to us. Here's how you could say it differently, if that just sounds a bit strange to you. Come and see a very different coronation. Here's how we could put it straightly and clearly. John's gospel is teaching us through the death of Jesus that God's glory is not seen in visible splendor, in stately processions and uh, orbs and scepters and thrones and crowns, but in something completely different, in the suffering, humiliation and death of Jesus. John wants to expand your definition of glory. He wants you to see 
a new kind of glory. And if you can see it, that's going to unlock everything for you. Well, I'm out to convince you of this one thing, and it is not my idea. I did not come up with it. Anything of merit this morning comes from the Gospel of Glory, which is a book by Richard Balcom, who's a scholar, and he puts it this way. He says, Jesus' deepest humiliation is paradoxically also his glorification. Sorry for the big words. Rather than humiliation followed by exaltation or suffering followed by glory, John's Gospel shows us exaltation and glory in the humiliation and death of Jesus. Is that, how's that sitting with you? Does that make sense? We're used to thinking of the cross as that's a dreadful and horrific thing to suffer. So suffering now and the resurrection, glory later. That's a typical way and a good way in which to think about cross and resurrection. But John wants to give you a new angle. He wants to give you something different to think about. He wants you to see the cross itself as glory, as Jesus' weakness, as true power, as his foolishness, as true wisdom, as his disgrace, as true honour. John wants to expand your definition of glory this morning. And I think there's two major proofs for it. Those are that Jesus says it, that's a good one, verses 20 to 36, and the Father confirms it, verses 27 to 36. So if the, if the above is true, we need to prove it. Here's how we prove it. Jesus says it, and the Father confirms it. And how does this cash out? What's this going to mean for you? How might this make a difference to your daily walk with the Lord? Well, if you can see the cross as it truly is, then that's going to unlock the way of the cross and the way of Christian living. If you can see the cross as true glory, then you'll come to see some of the things that Jesus calls us to as true glory too. And we'll get some more into that in a few moments' time. So we've seen that this first half of the gospel could well be described in another way. It could be described perhaps as the hour in which, a time in which Jesus' hour hasn't come. He, he says this, when the Greeks arrived to him in John chapter 12 and, uh, and verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So you could also view the whole of the gospel like this. Two halves, first half, my hour has not yet come. Jesus says that in a number of different places. And from this moment onwards, as we enter Passion Week, my hour has come. John 12, John 13, John 17. Jesus has come for a very particular purpose, which is his hour. Such that you could cast your mind back over the whole of John's gospel. You can, it's quite easy to imagine we've got those wonderful, um, uh, those wonderful visual images that we've been working through. You can imagine all the scenes in your mind now. You just picture them up on the stage. I don't have them here now, but picture them up here. And just cast your mind on those scenes. Throughout all of those, Jesus' hour has not come. Turning the water into wine healing the sick and the lame, feeding 5,000, 
walking on the water, making the blind see, and raising the dead. None of them will cut it. Can you believe all of those things have happened and Jesus' hour, his very purpose for coming, hasn't yet arrived? Jesus has come for a very, very particular purpose, his hour, and he describes it here for us painfully clearly. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does it look like for the Son of Man to be glorified? Well, he's going to tell us. And he uses this big visual image of seeds and a harvest. Very truly, a wonderful, simple image that any of us can get. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I hope we can see it. The hour of Jesus' being glorified is the hour of his death. Only once you can see the glory of Jesus' cross, that his glorification is his death, will the way of the cross, Christian living, make any sense to you. Look at these next passages. They're really, really hard, aren't they? Immediately following on from talking about his own death, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. So let's just take a moment now and actually just try and apply some of this. So I want you to um, get, get your thinking caps on of just think of something in your life, something without visible splendour that you do for Jesus. Think of something in your Christian life without visible splendor. Can you do that for me? Here's some ideas if you're struggling. Perhaps it's no one else is around and you are praying on your own. No one else is around for others. You are interceding for family members, for, uh, for the work of the gospel, for, for this church, whatever it may be. Perhaps you're praying alone. Or perhaps you're your thing you've picked of just lacks any visible splendor is serving in a physically or emotionally demanding way. You are spending time week in, week out, counseling people, uh, serving people, trying to be a friend, and it's demanding and unseen. Or perhaps that service is physically demanding. You're here uh, late at night during the week, locking up the building. No one's looking at that, are they? Or perhaps your thing of non-visible splendor is just a quiet but expansive generosity that keeps this place going week in, week out. And none of us know that you're, you're giving as much as you're giving and it hurts a little perhaps. Or perhaps your quiet and visible thing without splendor is just forgiving, overlooking the sins of others towards you when they are so painfully obvious. Once you can see that God's glory isn't invisible splendor, but in the, in almost in its opposite, in service, in being dishonored, in giving oneself, then you can just unlock what this, what viewing the cross as true glory can do for your own walk with the Lord. Let's try and do that. 
let's try and find something in our week, something without visible splendor, and just say, that's where God's glory is, whoever it is that's cleaned the toilet for us this week. You know, that kind of dynamic. What is it? Where is a place that right now it just looks like a, like a slog, like hard work, like disgrace, dishonor? Maybe that could actually be a place of God's glory and honor and praise. Well, let's move on. Uh, We get a glimpse next uh, into the soul life of Jesus. And he is telling us about this hour. We get a glimpse into that in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We get a beautiful glimpse into the soul life of Jesus as he looks towards his hour. He's deeply troubled. He's contemplating, praying to be saved from his hour of death. He's contemplating, asking for this to be removed from him, asking for the disgrace and the dishonor to be removed from him. And yet he resolutely decides against it. No, he says, It was for this very reason, this very particular reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, if we wanted to add to our proofs of why I think this is legitimate to say we're to come and see a very different coronation, here's one more. Heaven says it too. Or more accurately, the Father confirms it. Heaven immediately responds to Jesus' prayer. This has not yet happened in John's gospel. Many things have happened, but we haven't heard this. A voice from heaven, the voice of God in the heavens, responding immediately to Jesus' prayer and of Jesus' prayer of resolution and commitment to go to the cross. And he says, the voice from heaven, the Father, I've glorified it and will glorify it again. A thunderous voice from the heavens confirms that the heavenly plan is taking shape. Jesus says it will consist of judgment of the world. You can see that there. An end of evil and his own exaltation, his own glorification, his own being lifted up. Verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And here we just can return to this big idea, this big invitation to us to come and see a very different coronation. I wonder if you've seen it there in verse 32. Jesus' self-description of being lifted up has this stunning double meaning. That's the way he wants to talk about himself. He's going to be lifted up, quite literally lifted up on the cross. The cross is four meters high and two meters wide. It is put up there and it is very obviously a sign and a symbol. Jesus is going to be quite literally lifted up on the cross, but it has a double meaning. It also means exaltation, being raised, being exalted. This is Jesus' exaltation as well. It is in the cross that Jesus is exalted, glorified, honored. Can you see this? Can you see the different coronation? Jesus is exalted in his crucifixion, 
God is seen most clearly not in power, but in weakness, not in death, not in life, but in death, not in honor, but in shame. Can you see it? Can you see it? And are you ready to believe it? Well, we move on and with the last section of our passage and we are heading, we are making our way towards the table and towards communion. So I need to ask, can you believe it? Do you believe it? Are you ready to believe it yet? Are you ready to believe it now, this morning and take the step? Well, sadly, sadly, this amazing wonder of this different coronation is met with unbelief at times. Take a look at our, the next section of our reading. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. This was to fill, fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because Isaiah says elsewhere he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of it. As an atheist, here's what I would say. Why doesn't God make it more obvious? Why doesn't God make it more clear? There are so many ways to answer that question. That may be your question this morning. One of the ways to answer that question is to say, well, look what happens when he does. Look what happens when he does make it abundantly, abundantly clear. We've got multiple signs, even a voice from heaven. And here we have it in John 12, 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs, they still would not believe in him. They've seen more signs than are described in this book, remember? And fascinatingly, this just prompts yet more unbelief in those looking on. God makes it obvious, and yet this prompts more unbelief. God makes it clear, and fascinatingly, it prompts harder hearts, not softer ones. So why doesn't God make it more obvious? I just don't think is a valid objection. Look what happens when he does. Well, John is making clear from uh, this little section of his teaching that Jesus' glory and the differing responses to it have all been prophesied in the ancient scriptures, namely the prophet Isaiah, chapters 6 and 53, which when read together, allow us to see the glory of God in the temple, um, glory, honor, and praise, and the glory of God in the suffering and humiliation and crucifixion of Jesus. And they allow us to see us that all at once. The deeper point is simply this, that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, verse 41, and spoke about him. When Isaiah spoke about Jesus, he said of the suffering servant, he will be raised, lifted up, and highly exalted, 52, verse 13. And he says this of Jesus, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Isaiah saw it all. He saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him. But it doesn't have to be 
uh, unbelief. And it doesn't have to be at all. In fact, many, many do believe. I was an atheist and I came to know Jesus. I put down my unbelief and picked up belief in Jesus. Jesus has spoken about his own life producing a harvest. Many, many seeds. Loads of people are going to believe in him. In fact, the Pharisees are so exasperated with Jesus, they say, see, the whole world has gone after him. And in fact, they say far more than they could ever know because there are followers of Jesus in every nation of the world. The Greeks who go initially to Jesus, uh, they say, sir, would we like to see Jesus? And they show that the whole world is coming after him, even in the places it seems most unlikely. He's drawing all people to himself, verse 32. And so I just want to end with this invitation as we move now to communion. The invitation remains uh, open today. Having encountered all of this unbelief, Jesus uh, would say this, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me, is seeing God. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. That invitation remains open today. And one of the simplest ways we can respond to it is to let the lifted up, glorified, exalted Jesus draw you to the table this morning as we celebrate, uh, not with pomp and pageantry, but with the truly glorious, with broken bread and wine poured out.